Now, this sermon is on money. And some people might say that topic is inappropriate ever to be raised in a sermon at any time. Uh, But I don't agree. Anything that might cause us to squirm, um, God still wants us to address this topic. In fact, did you know that money is the main subject of nearly one half of our Lord Jesus' parables? Did you know that on average, every one in every seven New Testament verses speak to money? And did you know that the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but the Bible offers over 2,000 verses on money? Did you know that 15% of everything that our Savior ever taught was on the topics of money and possessions. That is, and that 15% that Jesus taught on those things is more material than he ever taught on heaven or hell combined. So clearly, money wasn't taboo to Jesus when he preached. Actually, money was a reoccurring target of Christ's ministry and preaching. Now, step back from that, and, and you might ask, why would that be? I mean, we know some things about the Lord Jesus that he was not. He was not name it, claim it in his theology. He was not a prosperity gospel preacher either. Certainly wasn't greedy or self-serving in any way. Jesus was not discontent with his simple lifestyle, living essentially homeless and owning only five pieces of clothing when he was crucified. In fact, Jesus, when he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, he pointed to the birds and to the lilies and not to the palaces and the costly clothing. The Lord Jesus targeted truth about money and giving money to the cause of God because, now watch this, money and how we give it to God is some of the most powerful heart medicine that there is. Getting money and how we give it back to the Lord right will fix your heart and mind like few other things will. Two good questions that I could ask the Holy Spirit to ask me at this point and two good questions that I encourage you to all ask the Holy Spirit to teach you at this point in the sermon are these. One, does my heart need fixing? And two, Is Christ Lord of my money and of what I put into the offering bag? I have three points uh, that I'd like to share with you. And the first point is this. Our hearts follow our wallets. That may sound odd to you, but Jesus taught that very truth, that our hearts follow our wallets. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to those who heard it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the first principle I'd like us to see in this special message is that our hearts follow our wallets. You know, Beth and I uh, never took any interest in Shepherd's College in Union Grove, Wisconsin, until we paid for our son's tuition to attend the college. We never prayed once for Shepherd's College until we, <laughs> with the help of a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, paid tuition for J.D. 
to be educated at Shepherd's College. You see, our hearts followed our wallets. And that's the whole principle. Jesus said that our hearts follow our wallets. And so if you want to love someone more, then one way is to invest money in their well-being. If you want to love your church more, one way is to regularly donate money to her ministry expenses. Again, Jesus' words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the first principle on this message is that our hearts follow our wallets. The second point I want you to see with me is our stirred hearts give more than enough. Our stirred hearts give more than enough as to respect to what's necessary. When I look back on it, a stirred heart is a heart that is compelled by God to do something, not to think something, but a stirred heart is a heart that God gives to someone who believes in him, a heart that is compelled to do something. I've had a few times in my life when my heart has been stirred to do something, like when I knew it was God's will for me to marry Beth Wisenhunt, I did something. I proposed to her. Or when a liberal clergyman in Canada wrote a letter to the editor of our town's newspaper supporting, supposedly supporting a biblical endorsement of homosexuality, I did something. I wrote a strong letter of rebuttal using scripture. When a coven of witches challenged me and another evangelical pastor to a televised debate on witchcraft versus Christianity. I did something. I agreed to debate. You see, a stirred heart is a heart that's moved to doing something. And certainly, praise God, human hearts like mine and yours can be stirred with respect to giving material things to God And the most profound stirring of any heart with respect to giving material things to God is done by God, not by oneself, not by a preacher like me using our own smarts or persuasions. No, a stirred heart when it comes to giving back to God is a heart that God must stir. And I believe he will stir some hearts, hopefully all of our hearts. And the result is, when we let God stir our hearts and we respond and do something with respect to giving, we cheerfully give what we're led of God to give to the church. May I remind you, you're not giving to me as your pastor when you give in the offering bag. And you're not even really giving to this church when you give in the offering bag. You're giving to your Savior who gave it all for you and who owns it all. Back in the Old Testament, there was a remarkable situation where the people of Israel had stirred hearts with regard to giving so that the tabernacle could be constructed. Exodus 35, listen to this. Then Moses assembled all the congregation and the sons of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. 
And Moses spoke to all the people, all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, that's essential, a willing heart, let him bring it to the Lord's contributions. Gold, silver, and bronze, and blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins, dyed red, and purpose, excuse me, porpoise skins, and acacia wood, and oil for the lighting, and the spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod, for the breastpiece. And let every skillful man, there it is, every skillful man among you, make all the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its boards, its bars, its pillars and its sockets, the ark and the poles and the mercy seat and the curtain of the screen, the table and the poles and all its utensils and the bread of presence, the lampstand also for the light and its utensils and the lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense and its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the doorway of the tent of the tabernacle. May I interject? He's not missing anything of what was needed for the ministry of the tabernacle. It's all itemized going on. The altar for the burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand the hangings of the court and its pillars and its sockets and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords and the woven garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Now what's going to happen? God's man lays it out, a shopping list of what's needed to build the tabernacle so God's command to be worshipped in the tabernacle before there was a temple could be fulfilled. What happened? How did they respond? They responded well, very well. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence and everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for its holy garments And then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord, not to Moses, to the Lord. And every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man had in his possession acacia wood for any work of service brought it in. I'm skipping ahead now to chapter 36, the bottom line, the timeless instruction. Then Moses called Bealzel and Aholiab and every skillful person whom the Lord had put skill, and everyone whose heart stirred him to come to do the work to perform it. And they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work of the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Then, skipping down, Moses issued a command. And a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp. Four million persons in the camp. A proclamation was circulated in the camp saying, let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more 
for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. What an amazing story of what God did in a camp of four million of his followers when he stirred their hearts collectively and individually and how they gave. A stirred heart back then gave more than enough and a stirred heart today will give more than enough as well. Because the hearts of the Israelites were stirred by God. So Moses had to say eventually, you know, I'm going to do some tabernacle turnaways of donations. <laughs> Sorry, you can't donate anymore. Wouldn't it be a profound working of the Holy Spirit if our hearts were so stirred and, and then we responded in obedience when it comes to giving, if the same deacons that came up today to talk about the grim picture would be able to say, it's okay, <laughs> we've got more than enough. You don't need to give to the general fund anymore. You don't need to give to the missions fund anymore. Why don't you just give to parachurch ministries for a while and to the poor? Wouldn't that be something? Stirred hearts would be stirring. More than enough given instructions to redirect giving. All the needs supplied. No ministry underfunded. Monies for improved and for new ministries. More souls won to Christ. More believers trained in the Bible to become fully committed followers of Jesus. Stirred hearts would be stirring. And so I invite you, starting today, every day, to pray for a divine stirring of hearts in your heart and your brothers' and sisters' hearts that are members and regular attendees of this ministry. Your church needs that. There's a call today to prayer and to have God stir hearts, starting with the man in the pulpit. And never forget, the one who can make a dead heart alive can wake up an enlivened heart that's sleeping. Ask David or Jonah or Stephen or Peter. Ask Nineveh in Jerusalem. You say, okay, Pastor Rob, I see the point that I ought to pray for God to stir my heart relative to giving to this church, but what would that look like? What would that actually look like? What it would look like this, number one, praying each week about how much more you would, God would have you to give. Number two, following the Lord's leading and giving that extra amount if he so leads. Number three, sacrificing something to be able to give more to your church. Number four, seeing that your offering gets to the church whether or not you get present for a particular Sunday. We talked about online giving might be a tool to help you. Our stirred hearts will give more than enough. I've talked to you about Mrs. Clements in a suburb of Toronto that really was a mentor to my dad and mother when they were newly saved as adults. She was in her home church, a little simple, tiny congregation on a Sunday evening. She's a widow. She's got uh, five kids under 16 years old. Her husband's killed in an auto wreck. No life insurance payout because of a technicality. So she went from being a comfortable, uh, stay-at-home suburban uh, mother to being the wage wage earner for her family. 
And she was in her little Baptist church in Toronto one Sunday evening, and missionaries who were being appointed with Child Evangelism Fellowship to Italy were presenting their ministry, and then when the time came for uh, an appeal for people to either give a cash gift to support them that night, or better, to fill out a pledge card that they would give a certain amount each month to support the missionary, Mrs. Clements felt a strong impression on her heart to give monthly to this couple. And she said in the pew, she had a silent argument with the Holy Spirit. She said, you know what I make. You know the expenses. <laughs> There's no possible way, Lord. And even if there was a possible way that you'd make possible, giving $1 a month is about all I could do. And $1 a month would be the administrative headache and cost more than was given to the mission. Well, the silent argument took place between the Holy Spirit and Mrs. Clements in her pew until she surrendered to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And she wrote on the card, $1 per month. And she gave $1 per month to Child Evangelism Fellowship for this couple to serve in Europe. Some years later, it was 10 years later, the couple came back to her little Baptist church in Toronto to report on their ministry. By this point, the man had been named uh, area field director for Greece, the whole country of Greece, with Child Evangelism. They came up to Mrs. Clements after the service. They said, you know the night we were here 10 years ago? Uh, you know that we were so discouraged in raising financial support that night that we decided that if the Lord didn't give us at least one monthly supporter, we were going to throw in the towel and quit. And your card for $1 a month was the only pledge that night. And based on your $1 a month, we kept going and God provided all the support we needed, and we've been serving the children of Europe with the gospel of Jesus Christ ever since. Stirred hearts give more than enough. Even her $1 a month was from a stirred heart, and it stirred those missionaries on to what God had for them in his will and plan and purpose. And so to review so far, we've seen that our hearts follow our wallets, our stirred hearts give more than enough. The third point, our right hearts will be here and available. Another wonderful story that um, we see in the Gospels is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a bag lunch. You know the story, the miracle. John 6, 11 to th- uh, 3 to 11, pardon me. And Jesus went up to the mountain. There he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. That means there must have been close to 12,000 there. If there are 5,000 men and 5,000 women, that's 10, and 2,000 children. Maybe there were as many as 12,000 people there. Have the people sit down. 
Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. What a miracle. (laughs) Somehow, this little boy, called a lad, knew about the cafeteria challenge that Jesus faced that day. Maybe he had his ear to the track, or maybe he was very, very observant. However it was, he saddled up to Andrew, Jesus' disciple, and gave him his lunch. Tells me his heart was right. He was thinking of others. He volunteered what he had, like Mrs. Clements volunteered $1 a month. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that being somewhere and being available in that someplace are not the same. Many a time I've ridden on the subway in Toronto, my home city, and I've seen many times uh, young men seated on the bench in the subway car reading or whatever they might be doing, sleeping in some case, and, and women hanging on to the strap, the stirrup strap from the ceiling of the subway car that you hold on to so you don't get thrown around when the subway car uh, stops and starts. The guys in that subway car who didn't give their seat to the woman standing with the stirrup straps, they were there, but they were not available to give their seat to a woman. This kid, (laughs) he was right there but he was available. I picture him being right beside Andrew with Andrew holding his sack lunch and Jesus right beside the boy. The boy was, he could say, I'm here. And the boy could say, I'm available. Here's my lunch. Verse three, and Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. His disciples were there. Perfect attendance. Nobody was missing. They saw the same cafeteria challenge that the little boy saw and that Jesus knew all about, and they didn't do anything. They were just there. (laughs) Nobody said, give me 200 denarii. I'll go to town and buy some loaves and cold cuts. They were just there. They weren't available. And sometimes in a church like this, people are here, but they're unavailable. They're unavailable for the offering. They're unavailable for ministry service. They're unavailable for volunteering their expertise and their labor as it's needed. (laughs) Philip, Philip's problem is in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He wasn't available. He was pessimistic. And then there was Andrew. He also was not available. Verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Here is a lad here, right there, who had five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? If Philip's problem was pessimism, then Andrew's problem was criticism. (laughs) Couldn't you thought, couldn't you plan more, Lord Jesus? (laughs) What's what's this little sack lunch going to do for the problem? Well, the temptation for me and for all of you is to be unavailable to the Lord in the prison of pessimism and criticism. How can my giving $10 more each Sunday erase a $25,000 bank overdraft? How can my 
giving caused the seventeen to $2,700 shortfall each Lord's Day go away? How do the leaders let this happen? I'm pretty sure that he or she could give more than they do. And just like Philip, Andrew's pessimism and criticism and Andrew's pessimism and criticism didn't feed the 5,000, our pessimism and our criticism won't turn around our church's financial ship. <laughs> the young boy, bless him, he wasn't pessimistic and he wasn't critical. He was available. Him and his lunch, available. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. The only way he knew that was the boy told him what was in the lunch and he looked. Apparently that boy was so here that the Lord Jesus took the handoff from the boy or from Andrew, and the boy and his lunch were so available to Jesus that no one had to walk anywhere for food to happen. I love that. We had a walk through Christmas outreach at the church I pastored in Pennsylvania, and there was a family with a young daughter named Tezu. Tezu was probably about six or seven and she went through the outside walk through Christmas display where the gospel was pre- presented by actors in, in New Testament era costumes. And she came up to me in the foyer with a cup of hot chocolate in her hand after that walk through. And she said, Pastor, how can I get involved? <laughs> Seven years old. How can I get involved? That ought to be all our questions. How can I get involved? Very quickly, very quickly, I want to go to an important New Testament verse on giving, make some observations, and then I'll quit. It's 1 Corinthians 16.2. For all the mess up of the problem of the church at Corinth, they had all kinds of incest, they had litigation, they had all kinds of problems, they had drunkenness at the Lord's table, they were a messed up church. But something else that came at the end of that epistle, is the Holy Spirit moved the writer, Paul, to challenge them to do something right. They were doing so many things wrong, he was challenging them to do something right, and it had to do with money. It had to to do with giving an offering of money to the Lord. And he said in 1 Corinthians 16, to a timeless thing, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. I see five timeless truths in that injunction or command. Number one, we give on Sundays. Number two, we give every Sunday. Number three, without excusing ourselves from giving, we give. Number four, we have saved it up first. Early in our marriage, we did that with our tithe and offering in a separate little uh, plain envelope that I kept on the top drawer of my desk. I put what we had determined we would give to the Lord, and we set it aside every week. And when Sunday came, we went into that envelope and took that cash out and gave it to the Lord. And our other monies for gasoline and food and all these different things were in a separate envelope over here. It could be that simple. Another question that uh, I've heard, and maybe you have, uh, should I tithe? Let me say that the New Testament gives no set percentage as to what we should give back to the Lord by way of our money. But many people see tithing as a starting place. 
Under the Old Testament law, the Israelite was commanded to give two annual tithes plus one 10% tithe every third year. So the average Jew under the law gave 23 and a third percent to the Lord. On the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save, as it may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And so the question again is, should I tithe? I think the answer is, a fair answer would be yes, if that will give you a starting place of disciplined weekly giving. But that being said, it's somewhat arbitrary. Maybe you giving 2% if you're not giving anything at all. Maybe starting to give 2% every week would be your starting place for regular discipline giving to the ministry. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. I do know that whatever we give to the Lord, we should give in faith and love and happiness that we have something to give. We have a job or we have a pension check or we have a little savings. Could be the 1%. Giving 1% could be a sacrifice for someone who's got very modest means. It could be giving 25% is going to be a sacrifice for someone else. Giving 50% might be a sacrifice to someone else on a higher uh, tier of, of, of income. R.G. Letourneau, who is a fine, committed, born-again Christian who basically invented every earth-moving construction uh, vehicle equipment that you see around the world being used in construction, became a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. He reverse tithed. <laughs> he lived on 10% of his income and gave 90% to the Lord. I don't know what percentage that you should give to the Lord, Beth and I, I think, have figured out what percentage that God wants us to give, but that's something to pray about this uh, week. Now, this has been a kind of a drinking out of a fire hydrant morning for you. I know that. You didn't expect that announcement. You're trying to process that announcement. Now you're hearing a challenging sermon about giving. I get it. You're kind of drinking out of a fire hydrant. But I want to close by saying this. I realize that you and I face some temptations at this point in this message. The first temptation we face is to be totally discouraged about our church's finances. The second temptation that we face is to see no hope for this being turned around. And the third temptation we face is to expect someone else to give more, but not to do so oneself. I have a little video I want to show you. It's 30-second time-lapse of 24-hour blizzard in St. John, Newfoundland. This snowfall came on January 21st of this year. Just watch the porch reel. 24 hours and 30 seconds. That wild or what? <laughs> I'll tell you something. That blizzard and its crippling shutdown of St. John's, Newfoundland, 
only happened because all those microscopic snowflakes decided to show up. Maybe you feel like a microscopic snowflake when it comes to giving to this church. God can use whatever you will give, and together we'll see this corrected. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you own it all, and that even the breath we draw and the heartbeats we have are on loan from you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the challenge today and the ongoing uh, need to pray about what we give back to this to you through this church. Uh, show us, Lord, what is right, and then give us cheerfulness and love to give it to you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.